Puget Sand. Hello, everybody, and welcome. It is time for Vintage Sand, episode number six, otherwise known as Mercury Theater on the Air. Okay, it's not really Mercury <laughs> Theater on the Air. However, it is November 2nd that we're recording this, and we're all just a little bit excited about the quote-unquote new Orson Welles film that's running on Netflix tonight, which we're totally going to watch as soon as we've done this. So uh, lots to be excited about, but first things first, literally. Um, we're going to wine gonna... before it's time. Exactly. Oh, poor Orson. <laughs> he would do anything. Frozen pee ads, and I he know, I know, he I know. Appeared on every talk show under the planet. It's so depressing. He was always interesting. <laughs> but um, his performance in the Muppet movie was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it will live with me forever. Um, we are today in episode six. Uh, talking about uh, taking a page out of Cole Porter's book, but instead of another opening and another show, we call this another show, another opening, because we're talking about our favorite opening moments in films, and we're ranging all over the globe and all over uh, the history of films. So hopefully uh, you will have fun as you strap yourselves in for the ride and come along with us. So... Um, that Wellsome is not going to keep. So we're going to get right into it. And why don't we start uh, with uh, Mikey, your number five favorite opening of all time. Well, I didn't do this in, in order of what I loved. I just did this in chronological order. Uh, Always has to be different. That's why I love him. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I, I just picked... Um, He's such a, a problem. Contrarian. I know he isn't. <laughs> See what I did there? I don't have... Well, actually... Actually, maybe the last one is my favorite. So, oh, okay. All right, all but right. let's start. Well, I think I know which one that is. Yeah, I, I would take a shot. Uh, let's start though with the great Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. Oh my! And uh, it uh, opens the credits open with the uh, Sunset Boulevard on the pavement, and then the credits going down down the street. Down the pavement, and then we see police cars. Yeah, they're on the pavement. Yeah, it's yeah, on the pavement. It's amazing. And then camera raises, and we see police cars, and then we hear the uh, voice of uh, William Holden saying, "Yes, this is Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. It's about five o'clock in the morning. That's the Homicide Squad, complete with detectives and newspaper men." And then he goes on to do. Uh, we, we see the um, cars. A, a cut uh, to um, the opening of a um, of Norman Desmond's home, and he describes a, a murder has been committed, but this one is um, an old-time movie star is available, one of the biggest. Mm. And then, as we see, he, he says, you know, you'll hear about it from the um, from the um, detectives and the columnists and everything, but you should hear it right from the source. And of course, he is the source. So Lovely. then we go in in the back. We can see in the far side a swimming pool, and a dead that's body. the one he always wanted. Yep, and the dead <laughs> body. And he said, uh, "Yes, there's a, a body found there. Two shots in his back, one in his stomach. Uh, the poor dope. He always wanted a pool." And yeah. then at that point, uh, we see. Holden, uh, they they, uh, they shot it from the bottom of the pool. Right, from the no. What? That's how that's how they they want it, were thinking of doing it. What right. they did is that they got a giant mirror. 
Oh, and okay. Put it in right. the bottom of the pool yes. and shot into the mirror. But it looks like it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It looks. Oh, yeah. The point of view is from yeah. the bottom of the pool. Yeah. You, Tricks you, of the and, trade reveal. And yeah. you see Holden's just poor, shocked expression. You know, <laughs> that's, that's a, it's a great shot. And, um, and that's pretty much it. But the weird thing about it is it was a last minute. Right, there was another opening. There another was opening another opening, and he shot it. And it was in a uh, morgue where uh, various um, Godivers were talking. And uh, to be one of my English classes. And one of them was a 10-year-old kid. And one of them was uh, a woman who had an accident. What about the monkey? And then the monkey. <laughs> well, there, there, there were two previews. One in uh, Everston, Illinois. Oh, they previewed it? Yes. Wow. So people actually saw that opening. Oh, wow. yeah. One in Evanston, Illinois, and one in Poughkeepsie, New York. And it was uh, in 1949 they had previewed it. And what happened was people were laughing a Ooh. lot. Yeah. And they didn't stop laughing no. once the picture <laughs> started. And it was just not the right... Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and, it, and then that, and he shot another ending to uh, Double Indemnity with right, Fred yeah. McMurray being mm-hmm. executed. And of course, he always swore up and down to the end of his life that those were the two greatest scenes he ever shot. Right. And they ended up on he, He's such a contrarian. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> but anyway, he shot the new ending. Uh, he shot the new ending in early 1950. And, and then that's the one that went. And, and it's wonderful. And that we all know. See, Michael, you are big. It's the podcast that got small. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my second one. Wait, no, no, you no, only get that. Around. We're going around. Oh, oh, I see. We're going to go around. How many times oh, have good. you done this? Or, yeah, geez. Right, good. <laughs> I can't take him anywhere. Yeah, all right. Good. All right. My number five, I'm going back. And it's a, a nice tie to Wilder because it was a... a, a uh, Opening that Wilder stole uh, for, you know, openly and happily for the opening of the apartment. And that is The Crowd by King Vidor uh, from 1920. You know, King, why doesn't anyone know King Vidor? I mean, the man, first of all, the big, some very good movies. the big Parade is one of the great films of the 20s. Then he did The Crowd. And then after, have you guys ever seen Hallelujah? No. No, he I had not. the guts to do to. He had enough power and guts at MGM to walk into Thalberg's office and say, "I want to do an all-black musical," as you know, his first sound movie, and yeah. they let him do it. Yeah. And by the way, folks out there, if you've never seen Hallelujah, it's a little uncomfortable, obviously, given the rate. But I mean, the fact that Vitor even made it. It didn't do any business, and it was another 15 years before Cabin in the Sky, you know, before they, again, risked right. having an all-black cast. Right. But, um, so the crowd is Vitor's story of John and Mary, two people in the crowd, and it opens with a little montage of John's life. We see him born in a small town. We see his father die. It's a very powerful little bit where the the coffin is carried out and his father keeps saying that his son is going to be someone someday and then we cut to New York he's 21 he's come to New York and some of the most unbelievable shots of New York that's one reason I mentioned last time how much I loved Harold Lloyd's film from that year Speedy the camera was so free and loose that you could do anything with it there's a sequence in the crowd at Coney Island that has to be seen to be believed but anyway, so just this incredible montage of New York in 1928, you know, right before the crash. Oh my God, they're coming to get us. <laughs> so we better get moving. Not everybody um, likes Fedor, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and, and then you, you get, and this, including this one shot 
where it looks like he's doing a Murnau thing where it's superimposed, but it's yeah. not. It's actually shot in an open window, reflected. Just ridiculous. And then finally settles after all the stuff on one building and then cuts to what's clearly a model of the building. The camera tilts up, goes all the way up the side of the building. We see there's a little lit window. The camera goes through the window, not without a cut. There's a dissolve. And then there's this endless, I mean endless, like Murnau in Sunrise, you know, like midgets in the back to get the perspective, um, series of desks. And the camera... It's, it's an amazing It's shot. ridiculous. And the camera goes over the top and finally lands on one desk. And we see the sign on the desk, John Sims 137, and it's John. And so this is what's become of his dreams. But part of the pathos and the beauty of the crowd is that he that John never gives up. In fact, that afternoon, he's introduced to Mary, and they end up getting married and having this very sort of lovely and tragic and interesting relationship. And it, it just, first of all, just the shots of New York City and what, you know, what, what guts to do that in 1928? And, you know, Wilder, I think, is, a, is right in paying tribute to it in the apartment. So check, uh, check out the crowd. The crowd is not even available on DVD. I can't believe really? I'm saying it is not. <coughs> nor is Napoleon, nor is Greed. Not that I'm bitter or bad as a silent film fan, but there you go. Um, and also, special hint, check out, after he did Hallelujah and he did the street scene, with Sylvia Sidney, yeah. which, is a, which is a good movie. Yeah, good and movie. he actually, I don't know how Vitor got this made, because it's basically a communist film. Um, it should have been made by Dovshenko or Pudovkin or someone like that. Um, Our Daily Bread, yeah. with, with, yes. which continues the story of John and Mary, although John Murray, the actor who played John, he was an unknown in the original, James Murray, rather, um, turned down the part and drank himself to death eventually, but it just one of the most cinematically daring openings, and unfortunately, if you watch films from 29, 30, 31, as you remember from that scene from Singing in the Rain, the camera is so bogged down by the sound recording equipment in those early days, but it's just glorious to see the camera flying everywhere. Just an also amazing... code. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. <coughs> All right, so that's my number five, John Meyer. Okay, I'm going to start off with Goodfellas. All my life I wanted to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so it starts out with the black screen. We hear the sound of cars going by. The white credits on the black screen move across the black screen with the sound of the cars going by. Credits designed by Saul and Elaine Bass. Oh, uh, uh, the masters. Cross to a shot of car from behind. We cut to inside the car. We see Ray Liotta. Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro in the car, and we hear a thumping noise. In the trunk, yeah. Finally, they, they like, they're asking each other, what is that or whatever? It's like, so they pull to the side of the road to see what's going on. Ray Liotta opens the trunk. Joe Pesci stabs the person in the trunk several times. <laughs> De Niro shoots the person in the trunk several times. And as Ray Liotta closes the trunk, the camera zooms into a close-up and freeze frame of Ray Liotta's face. And he says, the narrator, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Yes. And then the music starts, and we hear Tony Bennett saying, Rags to Riches. riches. I'll go for and that. we're off on a wild ride. I mean, who knew watching a movie about such sleazy, slimy gangsters would be so much fun? Although not everybody oh, found it, it fun. 
I know. Boy, no, I no. I did. I did too. And I thought I loved the ending. I mean, it's classic Scorsese. Bad guy, you know, makes good ending by rat- this time by ratting out his friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I love the film, and I think I think it's fun. But yeah. I do know. I worry about cr- you, John. You might break uh, under questioning. Uh, <laughs> there, were, there were critics who, who think I'm funny. Who thought it made light, too much light. Mm. And well, I think I think I, I think that was this aspect of the movie that to it, it's it's their point of view, especially the mm-hmm. Ray Liotta. It's his point of view, and the point is is that, like he says, I wanted to be a gangster, and to him it was fun, and that's that's what you're experiencing. Yeah, and so much in that. I mean, the uh, the shot when they go into the Copa. With many oh, kiss me oh, playing, God, you know, so nonstop, you know, no cuts for about four or five minutes. They're just, just so ridiculous. Beautiful. Love it. Ah, uh, when Scorsese was Scorsese. Well, maybe he's not. Maybe he's not done yet. Michael Edmond, number okay, four. Number four is a movie that uh, not too many people have seen, especially today. It's uh, made from the director Brian Forbes, who just died three years ago. Hmm. And unfortunately, in his obituary, Forbes was best remembered for The Stepford Wives, the 1975 yeah. version. And the best thing I can say about The Stepford Wives, 1975, it was better than the, the remake. Yeah, better than the remake. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Forbes, who's English, made several of uh, the black and white uh, 60s films. Right, that we were talking about we were in talking episode about. two. Everyone can look on back. But the, the, they were all British, and among them were uh, Whistle Down the Wind, which was... Uh, which Hay- I've never seen. One of Haley Mills's first adult uh, films, uh, her and Alan Bates. And uh, The L-Shaped Room. Yes. Leslie Caron. That, that's, that's, be- that's, that's a beautifully shot movie. film. Yeah. yeah, and a great performance from her. Yep. King Rat. No? George Siegel. Oh, excellent. It's from the um, oh, uh, Cavill, James Cavill novel. Mm, yeah. And I think it was the film that kind of made him I, yeah. mainstream. Yeah. yeah. It's him, Tom Courtney, John Mills, James Fox. All takes place in a Japanese prison camp. It's where they're being starved. Prisoners are being starved in World War II. Huh. Excellent. Turner Classic Movies has it on occasionally. Um, then The Whisperers with Damien Evans in 1967. Yeah. And the, then he kind of went soft. He started doing a few Hollywood films. The Mad Woman of Shio with Catherine Hepburn, which yeesh. is, yeah, I know. And not good. And uh, then his biggest hit was uh, The Stepford Wives. But this one in 1964, Seance on a Wet Afternoon. Wait, didn't he make an opera out of that? He didn't, but there was. But an there opera. was an opera. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yes. yes oh, it's the last was... opera I've seen. Right, which was actually beautiful. I, 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 you didn't like it. No. <laughs> so, so we shouldn't go see Mar- the Marnie opera together. I'm guessing. I hear. Uh, I hear Miss Hedman went though. Was the yes. Opening night. All 88 years of her and looking yes, amazing. In a red dress. Did you see those in a red dress. I loved it. Yeah. I did not, got a raw deal. Yeah. So how does anyway? Seance on one afternoon. Have you seen it? I no, oh I've not. Oh, you've never seen Seance on a Wet Afternoon? No. Oh. Okay. Was produced like the opera. produced by Richard Attenborough, and uh, and co-stars him, and he's excellent in it. And it uh, stars Kim Stanley. Hmm. You know, one of her only four films that she ever made. She right. only made four theatrical films and was the narrator for To Kill a Mockingbird. But uh, it it is a bleak, bleak movie. Black and white. We love bleak. And it opens uh, 
a, a pre-credit se sequence with just a candle and uh, with her and I'm not going to tell tell what the plot is it's just it, there is a seance you hear her voice um, saying a message a young face he's waiting peaceful hmm. and from the candle you just see hands you know in clutching each other and then you see the expressions on some of the customers face and you see two one woman and then another and then you see one who's in clearly in pain and then something happens with the candle and it sizzles and then there's a shot of the only man there and then you see the flame and she says everything is all right everything is all right and the flame centers on her face mm. and then she just puts out the flame and that's it and that's it and then the credits the music by John Barry yeah. excellent oh, yeah. score none better yeah. you see the, yeah, the credits are beautiful the the credits are beautiful done. you see, you see um, the individuals coming out not speaking to each other and uh, there's there's one uh, uh, woman a, a limousine waiting and then you see the others and then you see the man and he's just standing there and it's almost like he's waiting for it waiting for it to, the, for the rain to end and it does and then he walks away and that's that's the credits of this very gloomy <laughs> gloomy credits and the music helps make the credits of yeah. course yeah. I remember uh, the first time I saw it it was showing on PBS I was I was in college I was I remember I was home some holiday or whatever I can't mm -hmm. remember what or whatever I was just sitting at home one night and I saw that it was on being shown on PBS and that's when the Times had their their little blurbs <laughs> right. like one sentence blurbs or whatever and I was like oh this sounds like a really good movie I've never heard of it before mm. or whatever and I was I was blown away yeah I, it's so good is it on DVD I have it yes I have it you uh, have, uh, I will uh, lend it to you alright I definitely want to see it uh, it's, it's excellent and I, Stanley she got the New York Film Critics Award uh -huh. and she lost the Oscar to Julie Andrews and Mary Poppins. Stunner. What can I say? <laughs> but uh, all I want is a room somewhere. It's <laughs> it's uh, it, it's really, I think, one of the best movies of, of the early sixties. Yeah, and, yeah. And the opening. Yes, I would I would agree. And um, sets, yeah. sets and I don't the mood. Even, and it and there is a definite. Plot, which I don't want to really even talk. Yeah, about. I wouldn't. Yeah, talk if you haven't seen, you'll ruin it for them. Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah, it's not, and that's all I'll say about it. But, all right, uh, beautiful. Seance in a wet afternoon. We we I think we should outlaw when we become God. We should like outlaw color films. No more films in color. <laughs> Everything's got to be in black and white. What do you say? Yeah, guys? but then Vertigo would be in black and white. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but it was just a thought there for a second. That '60s black and white. Listen to episode two, everybody. It's an hour and a half on '60s black and white, so you'll you'll have your fill. Um, my number four is a double entry because they are intimately related. Also setting a mood, but a very different mood, and taking a huge, huge risk um, because it's sort of like it's almost like Moulin Rouge, your greatest showman. In that, you know, it's one of these things where you either buy in or you don't. And I'm talking about the original, um, I, I, what I think is the most romantic movie ever made, uh, and that is Jacques Demy's um, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, which, oh, first of all, just, it opens, do you guys remember, it opens with an iris out. Yep. 
yes. on a scene yeah. that looks like it could be taken from La Delante. It's barges on a canal. Yeah, it's and, very pretty. Actually. Yeah, and then the camera tilts, pointing yeah. down, and it starts to rain. And we see the rain from above. And we see the people walking by with the umbrellas yeah. and that Michel Legrand theme, yeah. which is, you know, right. it's, it's, it's so overplayed that it's cheesy, but there's a reason that everybody loved it. And it's just so, it so sets the mood for that film. And then the first scene of the movie proper is the scene in the garage and everyone's singing everything. And you realize, oh my God, he's really going to do this. He's really going to make a movie where everyone is singing every line. And again, you either say, this is hilariously bad, or I totally love this. I think it was the first shot of Catherine Deneuve that got me into the totally love this I'm in between. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I haven't seen it in a while. I, I remember not liking it. Maybe I should watch it again. But I do remember that beginning being just... Beautiful is not the right word. Pretty is a better yes. word, I think, for it. But also the different color umbrellas. And then all of a sudden, they kind of line up. and Right, the black umbrellas line up, then the pastel yeah. color umbrellas yeah. line up. It's just, just beautiful. The first time and I saw it, the, the all singing just got me, turned me off. Yeah, right. You but either... I recently saw it on Tenor, and I thought, oh, okay, I'm older now. <laughs> I I, ju- I have always loved that, yeah. and I'm not a huge fan of Demi. Um, uh, but and I also like, but not. You also need to see uh, if you like that the sequel, which not too many people have seen, which is the Young Girls of Rochefort. I have seen that. Um, with Catherine Deneuve again and her sister, uh, who died I think yeah. right after filming Francois yeah. Doria. Oh, horrible car and accident! And Gene Kelly's last musical performance. That opening, which has George Chakiris in it and a couple of other recognizable faces, is much more classically musical, but different. So, and then I go to, and here it comes, I'm bracing myself for it, the opening of La La Land, <laughs> which I know you guys hate. I know you guys well, hate it. I don't hate, but, I don't hate I hated the movie. The, I hated the opening. But it, it, it's so unexpected. I mean, I saw it three times, okay? And every time I saw it, the audience like leapt up and cheered after another day of sun, after the opening number. I just, and Well, I cheered when the song was over because it was <laughs> over. I didn't like the song. <laughs> I want to point out that these are the guys, the, um, Pasek and Paul and Justin Hurwitz who wrote it. Mm-hmm. They won the Oscar. They won yes, the Oscar for City of Stars. Yeah, I know. They, I didn't mind City of Stars. That was okay. Pasek and Paul wrote Dear Evan Hansen, which is, you know. But just the lyrics. Yeah, but after yeah. Hamilton, it's yeah. probably the best no, musical were, we've had. I agree with you there. Yeah, and they wrote The Greatest Showman, and it's funny. The Greatest Showman is... I hear it's awful. It, it, I haven't seen it. Every critic hated it, and every person I've seen, I've talked to about it, loved it. It's one of those films where there's you? a huge... I liked it a lot. Yeah? I was oh, very surprised. I'm trying to watch it. Um, yeah, it's, again, but you have you to like sort of suspend... Opening, so but Well, but <laughs> I liked it. I liked it because, it, you know, everyone... I, um, I'm sorry... I think a lot of people mistook what what Chazelle was trying to do there. I think they were saying he was paying tribute to old Hollywood musicals. He absolutely was not. No, he was no, paying no, no, tribute no, to Umbrellas of Cherbourg. No, because like yeah. one of the things you'll notice about the opening dance number of Another Day of Sun is that everyone is wearing solid colors, like bright solid colors. Right. Which and Demi very famously repainted parts of Cherbourg in those bright solid colors yeah. for the film. And and if you remember the first scene when we see that Emma Stone is working in the coffee shop 
uh, and they walk past the set, there on the set, sure enough, is a French umbrella store. Right. So if you the use of color in that film was fantastic. Right. So, but if that you if you see La La Land as trying to pay tribute to Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, no, it's not going to work for you. But if you see it yes, as I could, do, they could dance. Right, and could sing, and <laughs> neither can Ryan 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 Gosling can't, and neither can Emma Stone. Yeah. But just you know, because the I saw it as a tribute to Cherbourg, which I love so much, and so yeah, the which opening. It was. And, but it the opening it. is it's I love the choreography. I love the open the truck and the bands playing inside there. I thought it was very clever, just, and just can't get past the song. I huh? can't yeah, get past I, that I, song. I, I admired the enthusiasm I saw in this in the opening, mm-hmm. but it struck me as almost a Saturday Night Live skit Ooh. satire of a musical. Ouch. Ouch. Okay. All right. No, I can, um, you know, I, I, I can see that. But, I mean, it did, musically, it did kind of sound like a t- kind of song that if Michel Legrand was younger and writing today, that it had those kind of rhythms and it had that kind of chord progression that was kind of Michel legrand nothing like the music in Cherbourg. I like the beginning of West Side Story there. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, that's that's just an object lesson in how to open up a musical. I'm, I love that one too. So I I will I enter Umbrellas of Cherbourg and um, and La La Land as a joint entry because I think they're meant to be. No, yeah, no, I, I understand. Yeah, yeah no, it makes absolutely. Sense. No, and I understand why you. I mean, the song is kind of cheesy, but it it, it again, you either buy it or you I don't. Said, I and I was in a hundred percent. I didn't think all the songs were cheesy. I did like yep. uh, City. What was it? And the City? song that she sings for her audition. Yes, I thought that was a nice. Song the Here's to the Ones Who Dream yeah. song. I really love yeah, that movie. I, did too. I think I think they should have. I think La La Land should have won Best Picture, and Barry Jenkins should have won Best Director for Moonlight. But hey, that's just me. Johnny, you're up, number four. How can I top that? Okay, my next one is. All the President's Men. Oh, yes. Yes. What you see is just a, a blank screen, and then right. sound of the typewriter mm-hmm. hitting, hitting the, the paper. Right. And it's, it's like a, a gunshot. Uh, it's an extreme close-up of the typewriter key, you know, hitting, hitting the paper. And then what's typed out is June 1st, 1972. So it immediately... Places places you there, like where where you know in time and everything, but also it relates to the the power of the press. That that startling sound. I remember when I first saw the movie in your theater. Everyone in the theater is kind of like, kind of straightened up in their chair, like whoa whoa what what happened? Because it's it's like the sound of a gunshot, the the keys hitting the paper, but also uh, it sort of states a, a theme in the movie, which is how the two reporters just relentlessly keep trying to uncover the facts so they can tell the truth about what happened relating to the Watergate break-in and the following cover-up. So it wasn't, fake, it wasn't so, fake news? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's just a great illustration of a very, very simple and clear idea being very powerful and stating the major theme of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. No, no argument. And it's a great and, movie, and, and it is a totally great movie. And I think that it's Al- aged very well. Yes, yes. And, I, and I think that it's still all relevant. of as has Parallax View, as has Clute. I think those those Pakula films. Yeah. He's been Clute's sort of really left good. left in the dust, along with like Hal Ashby and some of the yeah. other seventies direct. But yeah. I mean, those films, Parallax View, is feels like it was made last Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, it's a that's an amazing film. So, yeah. uh, uh, Alan Pakula, check him out. 
Number three, oh. Michael Edmund. Okay. Come on down. My favorite Western of all time, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. Naturally, yes. 1969. Opens up, black and white silhouette, and uh, we see uh, five horsemen, and they all are uh, Mounties. We, of course, later find out they're not. And uh, we hear uh, in the background Jerry Fielding's score. It's kind of a partly ominous music, part march. And we see um, as uh, the film continues, there's a black silhouette and it stops, with the, which each credit the Wild Bunch. And then we see the first Mountie, William Holden, who at age 49 looked like he was 70 mm, in this yeah, movie. This yeah. was the first time you really saw... To good effect, though, in the film. Yeah. Great effect in the film, but you really saw the booze was finally taking <laughs> William yeah. Holden, and he yeah. would die 12 years later. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But anyway, and then, and then horse, the, the Mounties, they're riding on their horses, and then we see silhouette stopping of uh, Ernest Borgnine. His cohort. Yeah, the freeze frame. Freeze frame. And it, and it turns black and white from the color, which is Lucy, Lucian Ballad. Lucian Ballad, yeah. yeah. Great photography, my God. And then we see children playing with scorpions, torturing scorpions. Hmm? And then we see another freeze frames of, of other actors. And it continues. The, uh, horse, the horses are going down and freeze frame. And then we see they're coming into a town, and uh, we see a women a, a temperance meeting, led by Dub Taylor of all people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean. Guess Johnny Mac Brown was unavailable. Really? <laughs> but actually, it kind of worked. It's just that I just that that was a casting that kind of surprised me. And then the, we we see the uh, the. The meeting, five cents a glass, and he's yelling. Another freeze frame, and then we see them coming. The, the Mounties. They they meet two other Mounties, and they've been sitting there waiting. All is quiet, sir. All is quiet. Then another freeze frame. More credits, and then the Mounties come, and they're about to stop at the bank, and they get off, and William Holden says, "Okay, fall in, men." And it, it looks like uh, these Mounties are, you know, they're going to protect. And then they run into a little old lady who, who drops her bags. And she goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so... That's all right, ma'am. Please, take my hand. And the other one says, uh, Borgnine says, allow me, ma'am. He picks up the bags. And they walk <laughs> across the street. In the meantime, on the rooftop next to the bank is Robert Ryan and his cohorts. Uh, uh, who is a former member of the gang and has 30 days to get the, get the bunch, to to kill the bunch, down. to hunt yep. them down, or back to Yuma. And, uh, and he's asleep. <laughs> he's asleep and he's awakened. And once again, another freeze frame. And then they go into the bank, the Holden and the, the other Mounties, and suddenly we realize not as all what it looks like to be. Lovely. Because the person at the bank says, may I help you gentlemen? And he holds him, throws him halfway across the room. <laughs> they all take out their guns and he says, if any of them moves, kill them. And then 
Freeze Frame, directed by Sam Peckinpah. Lovely. It's a great opening. It's a great opening. It's a, I mean, it's a great movie. I've, I disagree. I know John doesn't like it as much as I do. Too violent? I don't. There's... Um, well, I wanna, why don't you... No, no, your, that's enough. What, what I... The opening. When the scenes were like the big scenes of the violence and everything, I don't understand what Peckinpah is doing when he does like these alternate points of view with the violence and everything. I just don't understand what he's saying. I don't, I don't get it. No, it's, and I, I feel that way about a lot of his work, Straw Dogs, especially. Well, but that's yeah. all. Actually, it's um, one of the few Peck and Paul movies I like. Yeah. Because after, after the Wild Bunch, I saw every one of them, and most Kept of them. Hoping, yeah, for most of them else. were very disappointing. You know what's held up well, surprisingly, is Pat Garrett. I and Billy the Kid. Years. That's real. Check it out I again. I haven't seen it in a long time, yeah. but I, you're not the first person who has but, said that. Yeah, that's well, I like Junior Bonner. Uh, Race car, few, yeah. yeah. One of the I few Steve that. McQueen movies I ever liked. I, I have a question. Who do you know who designed the credits, or was did Peck and Paul have a lot I of? Do, input? You know, I'm not sure. Because I do remember at around that time there were a number of TV shows that were using that same technique with, mm-hmm. you know, showing one of the actors in the show and then and having then freeze, a, a freeze frame yeah. and it would turn to like black and white, like a like a drawing type thing or whatever. It was. It seemed to be in vogue, and I don't know if it was um. if it was the same person designing the credits or if um, the Wild Bunch influence some of the other people doing credits for the TV shows. I don't I, know. Yeah, I don't know. It's funny. It's the antith- the other western that everyone thinks of from '69. Of course, not is not Butch Cassidy, but Once Upon a Time in the West. And remember, that's got a 22 minute opening credit oh sequence. <laughs> Even I'm a huge Leone fan, and even that was way too much for me. I was like, seriously, man, come on. Hey, don't forget True Grit from 1969. I'm kidding. <laughs> you know. It's no, it's not. <laughs> okay, all right. To me, it's a rare case where they To me, it's a rare case of the sequel being better. The remake, well, yeah. I yeah. mean, I really like Jeff Bridges and Matt Dan. And the girl, Hallie Seinfeld, yeah. was just was just spectacular. All right, speaking of freeze frames, that lovely leads into mine. Um, in the last episode, which was about our great years in film, I talked about 1960 and focused on some other films and put La Dolce Vita um, gently to the side, although barely. Um, so Fellini gets his due here, and the opening, of course, is the opening of Eight and a Half. Because La Dolce Vita is also a great opening. Right, also a yeah. great opening. But Eight and a Half, I mean, you want to talk about a film that captures the conceit of the, uh, that, that captures a conceit of the film. Remember, it, it's, it's black and white. It's, it's Mastroianni playing the Fellini stand in Guido in the car, and then he's in this incredible traffic jam that goes on forever and he can't get out he can't breathe he starts kicking against the window and you know and then and then that and that's what eight and a half was about because the story is well told but after Dolce Vita for the first time in his life he had no idea what to do until some smart person said hey Federico why don't you make a movie about not knowing what to do and it doesn't seem that revolutionary now, but that was the beginning. So many people have copied it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm a huge David Lynch fan. I mean, just about everything he's done. But, you know, Lynch owes everything to Fellini because it's Fellini who breaks down the, the, the line between film and director. I mean, where does yeah. the film begin and where does the director begin? It, it, and, it's, and, of course, and then the sequence ends with him standing on the car, on top of the car, 
And there's all these great shots of the people going by. I mean, it's the real beginning. I guess Dolce Vita is the beginning of the adjective Fellini-esque. But, you know, all these kind of strange faces staring at him. And then he does a couple of freeze frames on the people staring at Guido right. in the cars. You know, right. the old man and then the woman. And then he goes, he flies. Yeah, he, he takes flies. off and flies. <laughs> and, and then the next, and dissolved to him, you know, with a rope on his ankle up in the air, and it's his agent or whatever, you know, when he, he was like, I've got him right here, and he pulls him down and back to earth, and then you know, we see Mastriani waking up in bed, and it's, it's a dream. But my God, what it sounds a little mechanical. They had that shot. That's right. They had the shot. There's a shot of his hand reaching, right, reaching up in the air. Exactly. Or and what for for writer's block or for creative state? You know, he's stuck, and he can't come up with what how to follow a film like Dolce Vita. And what a brilliant visual metaphor for that. And everyone has copied and stole. REM, one of my favorite it's, bands, did their their video for Everybody Hurts is literally that: the black and white, the traffic, the whole thing. So. Um, it's great, it's great a, in, a, in a film of many many wonders. It's one of my ten favorite films in the world, I think. But the opening is just a perfect metaphorical setup for what we're going to be talking about in the whole film as he tries to get over this creative block. So I go with eight and a half as my number. Three. I, I w if you hadn't done it, I would have. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I it's, it's 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 just it's eight and a half. God, I love that movie. Mm. And when I show it in film class, yes. uh, my my kids love it. Do they? They do. Believe. Believe it or really? not, they really like it. So there you go. John, your number three. Um, my next one is Vertigo. So again, we're going to see if we can do a podcast without mentioning Vertigo. It's, gonna be hard. <laughs> it's not going to be easy. Be exactly. Have we, have so, we yet? I don't, I don't think opening, so. No, just the generation credits, of '99. Again, one. opening credits designed oh, by Saul Bass. Bass. So let's take a little oh, moment my. to say hail to oh, Saul Bass. This crosses itself whenever you say his name. That's I mean, what a genius! Because uh, he he did the credits for Psycho, yep. North by Northwest, Anatomy of a Murder, Spartacus, Seconds. I mean. Oh, Age of Innocence. Credits for seconds mad, with mad, the, mad the, the fish yeah, eye. That's right. He did oh that my. a lot, a oh lot of movies, and and, and he designed Monkey the the opening of uh, West Side Story. I don't know if he also had him. If you remember the beginning of West Side Story, it was a, the lines. It's just, it's just yeah, mm -hmm. you just those lines, and it's you hear the music. They call it the overture or whatever, and um, you know slowly it turns into a shot of the city. I don't know if he was involved with also designing the helicopter shot. What about the end credits? So, uh, he probably, yeah. Because yeah, the end credits are also kind of yeah. fascinating. I mean, yeah. except with yeah. the exception of, you know, the opening sequences in James Bond films, you know, the ones done by Maurice Binder. I mean, no one has come close to mastering openings and I'm not, like that. And I know that it, Goodfellas, his wife also had credit, but, you know, for the credits. I'm not sure exactly when she was starting to work with him on the credits and I don't know if I'm not sure if Good, Goodfellas I think may have been the first time she was actually credited on the screen but she didn't do anything for a while and came back and came back so, yeah, and, and you know the the eye in Vertigo, the close up on the eye. I mean, Polanski yeah. rips that off in um, in Repulsion, yeah. yes. and yeah. uh, and Frankenheimer rips but it off in Seconds. But he didn't just design yeah. credits; he designed the beginnings of movies. Right. He always integrated what the movie was about into his his credits. So, so back to Vertigo. <laughs> anyway, I know I was just going to say if you watch oh the God. credits without the music, you can't. You can't. Because the music is Swirl. so important. Exactly. Yeah. That it's gorgeous music by Bernard Herrmann. 
It's emphasizing the swirling push-pull circular motif of the movie, mm. as do the credits with the various spiral designs. So we see, you know, at the beginning of the credits, we see a woman's face, the camera moves to her mouth, and then to her nose, and then to her eyes, and then to one eye. And then it goes into her eye, into the pupil eye, and the spiral designs begin, and that, that music is just, it's hypnotic, absolutely hypnotic. And then, of course, the last credit we see coming out of her eye is directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Dun, 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 dun. And then it goes to, we see a white line across the screen. A bar. And then we realize it's, it's a bar. And then we see a man's hand grab. And then we goes back a little, camera goes back a little bit more, and we realize it's someone going up a ladder. And then we see a policeman, and then James Stewart, and they're, they're chasing this man across the rooftops. And James Stewart, they have to jump to another building. The, the man being pursued makes it. The policeman makes it. He also slips a little bit on the roof, too. And... That roof also is that Spanish design mosaic, which echoes the Spanish mission that we see later. San Juan Batista. Yep. And then James Stewart jumps, and of course he slips and grabs onto the gutter. And the policeman. Give me your hand. Give me your hand. And he falls, and we see that great shot of the the policeman. The dolly and zoom out. Yeah, the zoom out. I mean, however he did that or whatever, and the, again, the music is so amazing. Yeah. But then it fades out, and James Stewart just hanging by the gutter, and then it just emphasizes the the dream effect of, of the entire movie. Well, there's it's, there's that theory that's been standing for a long time that that none of the film actually happens; that it's the whole film is his dream as he falls because. The, Practically speaking, there's how could he possibly have gotten down from well, there? Well, that's the thing. I've always wondered that's, that. That's, that's the thing. I know, I know. Whenever you watch, like, well, who, who helped him to take the cops at least a couple of minutes to get there? Yeah, and, yeah. and then, then, I mean, the man they were chasing certainly was going to turn around and help him. Would have been nice. Nice touch. <laughs> San Francisco, they're very friendly there. Yeah. You know, unless, of course, you know, maybe the fire department came in time and they yeah. you know, caught him. I, I don't know. We you don't know. know. And, and don't it's know. good that we don't know. It's good that we don't. Yeah. Absolutely. I, the last thing you want to see is him being taken down by the truck and no, ladder. No, yeah. no, it emphasizes the whole thing of, of fear of falling, and which is another theme that is part of the movie too the whole fear of giving yourself over to falling in love yeah absolutely and then to Mitch and then to Mitch and that cuts to Mitch Mitch the Mozart (laughs) (laughs) incredible if we don't stop there we'll start doing the entire movie (laughs) that should be one part we'll just recite we'll act out the entire movie from memory I think (laughs) we can do that with Citizen Kane too I mean and you can do that with so many different Hitchcock films I mean it's just just extraordinary and I you know but you can understand why the film was such a failure in 58 well it wasn't a failure I think it it actually wound up making a little money it did? yeah No, I I think a little bit maybe a little bit but it was not it was not a a, a, it just it was not a huge hit or no not like some of his other movies yeah and he at that time most of his movies were doing very well. Man, right. Man who um, Man who knew too, too much, much was a big hit. Had, wrong Man did okay for and the Wrong budget. Man yep. did very well. Yep. Vertigo was sort of like... And he disowned it. He it's, said... It's he, surprising that the Wrong Man did as well. Did as well. I mean... 
I think people like that whole uh, thing with the cops. Oh, that's such a good movie. John, listen back to episode one. John talks in detail about that one. So (laughs) please, please, please listen. All right, Michael, number two. We're moving up the list. Okay, Robert Altman's Nashville. Yes. And this is the longest opening of, I think, any of our openings. It goes almost ten minutes. Why don't people watch Nashville anymore? It's I don't good, understand. Right? I talk, I've lent it to friends who hated it. What? And I don't get it. Maybe it, it can't be seen. Have you ever shown it in your class? No. No. Try. The only thing I've ever shown from Altman is the film I'm going to be talking about. So. Yeah, but I would, I would like to know what your kids would think of Altman. Because, well, I, I think it's Altman's best movie. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I um, no doubt. Yeah. And I think it's one of yeah. the key movies of the 70s. Yes. And it's a movie that it's hard to describe. When we were all uh, working as, for Variety, trying to um, classify. classify movies, right. Nashville was impossible to really classify. Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it a musical? Yes, 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 and no. Yeah. It's, it's an that and Eraserhead were impossible yeah. to classify. <laughs> Good company. But anyway, I always describe Eraserhead as imagine going out on your first date and meeting your girlfriend's parents, but it's a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Oh yeah. my god, I still have nightmares about the lady in the radiator. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, back we to, digress. Back to Nashville. We always do. It uh, the the credits open with a kind of a quasi advertisement. Uh, that they used to do in the 70s uh, for um, for record albums. Yes, yeah. you see them all the time. On and TV. you used to see K-Town. them all. And yep. it, it's presents. actually a little cheesy, but all it does is just basically introduce the 24 actors who are going to be in the movie. But yeah. that's not really Amazing. the credits. After, after they do this, then, then we see a van in Nashville. And it is the van for the third-party replacement candidate, Hal Philip Walker, talking, uh, frankly, gibberish <laughs> about, you know, uh, why the two parties can't work. But he doesn't really say anything about himself. He just, he just you know, it, it could be a symbol of, you know, who is uh, as president now. But we then, and then we hear, do hear the chords of music starting. And then we see one of the 24 characters in a, in a um, rehearsal room. Um, Haven Hamilton, played by Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson. Of all people. I mean, I, I, good he is really, Wonderful. really good. Um, I guess the only thing I'd seen him in before uh, was The Long Goodbye. Other than laughing, yeah, yeah, yeah. laughing was was where he made his name. Yeah, but I never really took him seriously as an actor. He is terrific in this, and he is singing this song, which he's credited with writing, because most of the actors wrote their own songs, which I still am finding hard to believe. (laughs) Either either that, or it says something about country music. The country music is easy to write. (laughs) I mean, Karen Black wrote her own song, and it's not a. Even a bad must be song. doing something right the last two hundred years. But that this is <laughs> this is his song, and he's he's it's patriotic, and uh, and I have to say in in this credit in this in the credits start, 
the uh, technical credits start as he's singing. And then we see several people in the studio. They're listening to him and they're on rap, including his. We see five actors of the 24 in this, in this credits uh, sequence. Besides, we see Haven Hamilton and takes himself so seriously singing this awful song. But I, I know, not awful, it's just the, the lyrics, you know. We must be doing something right. 200 so I, years. If I have to go to war, I hope my sons won't go to war, but if they must, they must. It's like, who sings that? But I, I, I'm not sure what Robert Altman's take on country western music is. I, I, he never really would talk about it. From Texas. Yeah, well, anyway, and we see um, uh, Haven Hamilton's son, um, Buddy Hamilton, played by Dave Peel, an actor who I never saw before and never saw since. Hmm. And then we see his mistress, Lady Pearl, played by the great Barbara Baxley, who later in the film goes on about the Kennedy assassination. Right, right, right. And then we see Opal, who walks in. Opal is a uh, documentary direct uh, filmmaker from the BBC, played by Geraldine Chaplin. And she is possibly the worst filmmaker. <laughs> this woman can never stop talking about herself or her experiences to ask a question. Henry Gibson sees her, sees the tape recording, freaks out, orders her out. And... Uh, uh, the son, Buddy, takes her into another studio. The credits are still rolling, and when we see a gospel group from a, a college, all black except for the lead singer, played by Lily Tomlin. And um, she's just, uh, and he's, he's showing um, Geraldine Chaplin. He's obviously uh, has a thing for her. Although you can you can tell that he's just really trying to be nice to her, even though her fa his father is just throwing him out, throwing her out, and she's watching, and the credits are still rolling. <laughs> They're slow. It's it's like I think it is one of the longest pre-credit uh, pre-film uh, scene uh, with credits I've ever seen. It's like twelve minutes of credits. Yeah, it's long. And um, you know, and she's uh, looking at all these um, black. Uh, singers, except for the lead, which that in itself is kind of odd. <laughs> and, and he says, oh, that's our lawyer's wife, our attorney's wife, <laughs> uh, who's singing that. And, um, and uh, she talks about, a, uh, the Geraldine Chaplin character talks about all this stuff she, she's done in Africa and all, you know, where you see all these African singers and they're bare-breasted and she just never stops talking about herself. And then she goes, is this the way they act in, in church here? And he goes, well, it depends what kind of church you go to. And then we're back to Haven Hamilton and he's really mad at uh, one of the musicians. Uh, his name is Frog. He goes, yeah, and he plays like a frog. And that uh, person is actually Richard Baskin, who um, arranged all the music. Oh, okay. The and um, he starts singing again, and nothing is going right. And finally he says, what's the name of the piano player? Frog, sir. Well, frog. Well, he plays like a frog. Now, 
when I want pig, then we can finish this here album. And then he le and he storms out, takes some, uh, takes Frog, whose hair is out to here. He's got this black afro, even though he's white. And he says, uh, you get your hair cut. You don't belong in Nashville. And that's finally the end of the credit sequence, <laughs> and then it goes to the airport. It, it's... I'm not doing it justice. It's a, it's a brilliant, no, brilliant it, opening. What a revolutionary way to make films. I mean, yeah. no one had made films like that before. And With all those characters and the and the you know overlapping yeah, dialogue and the, and the and oh my god, it was he shot eight hours of footage of actual not you know he could have made an eight hour movie. He put it down, got it down to three hours and forty minutes. Paramount took it from him yeah. and cut almost an hour out of it. It's like two hours and 40 minutes. I wish somehow we could see that. At least the missing footage that Altman mm. had wanted. Because oh. there are a few characters like... That aren't fleshed out. That aren't like the Jeff Goldblum whatever. character. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, but from MASH to, what, Three Women or Thieves Like Us, maybe? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's not a bad movie in that bunch. Oh, Yeah. He's made a couple. No, but uh, well, and the, and then after oh, Popeye, after. Oh. nothing but disasters. Actually, in he, the '80s, he did one in the '70s with Paul Newman. Oh yeah, and BB Anderson. Do you remember the name of that? Um, it's a it's something about. It's a, a futuristic. It's a futuristic sci-fi society. It's winter all the time. I can't it's, think of the name. No. All right. Anyone who knows it, phone on in. Where's our fact check? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Not here. Just he, ma he made a few, and also Buff he made right afterwards. He made Buffalo Bill and the Indians in 1976. Uh, Which and has so it's far, okay. it doesn't yeah. all quite doesn't work. Quite work. It, I mean, there are parts of it that almost look like someone trying to copy an Altman movie or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there are some right. things that do work. It's but there's no know. like there's no Paul Thomas Anderson without Altman. No, I mean, no, true. you know, yeah. Boogie Nights and Magnolia are both straight up Altman imitations. And three years, three years from Nashville, he did a wedding, which was not well received, which I liked more than the critics. And that was forty eight characters as opposed to twenty four characters. Amazing, just, just amazing. Yeah, so definitely. and uh, Altman figures for me too, and my which my number uh, my number two, which is another joint entry. Sorry, everybody, but. They are intimately tied, and I'm amazed you guys didn't take this because I offered it up. But uh, speaking of Orson Welles, of course, it's the opening to Touch of Evil, which is, you know, the happiest of happy accidents in, um, in film history. One of the stories, there are several, is that he was just hired as an, to be an actor on the film to play the sheriff, Quinlan. And, you know, Charlton Heston, uh, in his good guy days, apparently talked to the producer, Albert Zugsmith, and said, you know, you're an idiot. You've got Orson Welles here. Why don't you let him direct? And somehow, Wells, who had, you know, become persona non grata years before in this country, you know, it took him four years to put Othello together in Europe and then another two years for the mess that was Mr. Arcaden. Um, and, but he got to direct this, redo the script from an awful novel called Badge of Evil. And of course, it opens with a two and a half minute to three minute nonstop cut which is nothing short of it's 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 nothing short of miraculous and it begin it sets up the entire movie we see the opening thing is the bomb being placed in the trunk of the car 
uh, Mr. Lineker and his girlfriend there getting in. The car drives around and goes up the main street towards the border, border crossing. And then we pick up Janet Lee and Charlton Heston, the newly married Vargases, um, and just all the, the the choreography of it, everything, it's just impossible because there's people crossing back and forth and, you know, one person is off by one second, yeah, and the whole yes. thing is ruined. And of course, there's also that legendary story that Wells, that that the wind was blowing and screwing things up, and Wells got up on it and said, "I command the wind to stop," and it did. <laughs> I'm not sure I buy that one. I, you know, if anyone could do it, it would be it would be Orson Wells. But and so then we meet them. We see that they're married. That he's just put away some of the Grandi family, and then you know. Just getting an ice cream soda for my wife. And, <laughs> and then, I mean, okay, his acting is not amazing. And then as he, and then we see the car crossing the border, and the girl says, "Hey, I hear ticking. I hear ticking." And you know, everyone's like, "Yeah, you're drunk, oh." And and we see. Then we go back to Charlton Heston and Janet Lee, and he, and you know, the first time we see them kiss at that moment, off screen, boom, yeah. the car, the car blows up. And, you know, he, as the cop, goes running towards there. And Joseph Cotton, in his uncredited line, gets to see what's left of him. You can strain through a sieve. <laughs> awesome. I think it's his best performance. I love <laughs> Joseph. I, I'm sorry. I'm a Joseph I Cotton just, fan. I just, whenever I watch that, I just always wonder how many takes did they have to do to get this role? I know. And, well, and I happen to like it. They released it uh, without the Mancini music yes. uh, a few years ago. Hallelujah. I don't I, I don't like, miss it. It's, it's kind oh, of, you know, I'm, I'm, it's kind I'm of down and dirty. I like I, it. I kind of liked the music at, at the same time, the way that then was after it was re reconstructed and everything without it. And I heard people complaining like, yeah, but I really missed the music. I know yeah. I kind of did. And so, and that leads to, to part B of my entry, which of course is Altman's The Player, which, you know, makes a very conscious and active and vocal attempt to, talk about Wells's opening of Touch of E. It's about, it's almost 10 minutes, and it opens up the film. First of all, it's just brilliant because it opens up with, we don't know whether we're watching is real or is being filmed. Remember, it opens right. up with something, yes. lights, action, and then the story begins. The yeah. secretary answers the phone and says, oh, yeah. he's not in. The other one says, yes. no, never say that. And, um, I, I, and then... You know, it's this 10 minute that ends up with Tim Robbins playing the producer, Griffin Mill, uh, getting the postcard, the threatening postcard uh, from, um, from, well, I won't say from whom, but, um, and the best part, of course, is, well, several things, is Fred Ward, who plays, you know, studio exec, talking about Wells' opening to Touch of Evil, right. and how complaining how nowadays it's all MTV, cut, 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 yeah. you know, like that. And then what the best thing is the pitches. Because we get to see Buck Henry pitching The Graduate 2. Right. All right? <laughs> oh, God. Right? Oh, did that sound the bad? The three primaries are still with us. I was thinking someone younger, maybe a Julia Roberts type, you know? And then the and then James Cameron comes in and pitches this movie that's like, it's, it's Ghost meets Manchurian Candidate, but with a heart. You know, it's just hilarious. I mean, it, all the, you know, Michael, you talked about how... Um, Hollywood shredded uh, Nashville and, you know, did some damage to lots of other films. This was his glorious revenge. Oh, absolutely. And he, he just reveled in every minute of it. And it just, again, as with Touch of Evil, the choreography is and just astonishing. talking about a director, Orson Welles, who had movies that were also 
taken away from him. And, and yes, torn apart. Uh, by everybody. Yeah. Anyone find that last? Ambersons. Yes, I was going to say, anyone finds that hour of missing footage from Ambersons, please phone in. Ugh. And oh. uh, you know, <laughs> we'll be happy to, uh, happy to take it off your hands. And, you know, there are other movies that do that, like Brian De Palma, who I usually don't like, but Snake Eyes, which is a terrible movie, but Snake Eyes opens with an incredible, it's about a 12 minute, there are yes, actually yeah, a couple a, of, yes, that's one with the, uh, Nick Cage and uh, Gary Sinise, right. and even the last Bond film, which was one of the worst in the uh, series, Spectre, opens with uh, Sam Mendes directed, with the yes. with him in Mexico in the Day of the Dead, and does that all without a cut. I but love that. For, the, for the without a cut openings that set up the entire film, Touch of Evil and The Player are my co-number twos because they so nicely reflect off each other. I just want to add that I did look up the uh, Altman movie from the 70s that's really bad. It's called Quintet. Quintet, oh, that's Quintet. right. Quintet, yeah, wow, right. okay. It's really, really. And I love Paul Newman. I love the B.B. Anderson. I walked out of this movie. Yeah. yeah it was... And you were on a plane. <laughs> we made that joke three episodes ago. John Meyer, number two. Okay. The Godfather. Let's just pause for a moment and pay homage to The Godfather. All right, everyone's moment of silence. <laughs> okay. Nice. Which we've talked about almost as much as Vertigo. Yes. But yeah, well, that's all right. That's yes. okay. What, what but, better uh, film? Again, another movie that's the opening is so simple but so powerful. Uh, Black screen, we hear the very famous now lone trumpet sound, the theme, uh, the Godfather theme. And as the face is revealed of Bonacera, we hear, hear him say, I believe in America. Yep. And right away, it's, it's illustrating the, the immigrant experience. And in that scene that follows, there's, there's almost all the themes of the movie are, are illustrated. Um, the, the, the family, because we see all the, we see Sonny and we see uh, Tom Hagen as uh, Bonacera describes uh, how his uh, daughter was beaten by two young men. And he wants revenge and he's, that's why he's come to Don Corleone. Who we don't see yet. No. <laughs> we don't see until we see the we see him from behind. And then finally we see him from the front. Marlon Brenda playing with the cat. Right. Supposedly uh, the story goes that Coppola just kinda threw that cat in his lap just before they started shooting, like, huh? <laughs> but he knew Brando could could handle that. And What's so interesting is that first line, I believe in America, is that Don Corleone did not believe in the American dream. Because that's what sets mm. him on the path. Because we know that when he was a young man, when he was a young boy, he sees what happens to his family, to his, his father, his brother, his, his mother. Yep. Right in front of him, his mother is killed. Yes. As a young man, he still sees that in the neighborhood he's in, it's still the same, that the mafia has the power. And he knows that, that the law at this time is not going to help him. But and, still, it's like a twisted version of the American dream in that he yeah. comes here with nothing and builds himself into yeah. just yeah, sort of the dark underside yeah, it's, of it. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's another thing that's in that first scene because it's, it's dark. Oh, Gordon Willis, then, we love you. Yeah, and then 
when it cuts outside, it's like, uh, this is what we're showing everybody, but, you know, this is what we really do when we get back into the office in the dark. And uh, it's so simple, but the, just how it, it, it's so powerful. And how he's able to, to illustrate the, the, some of the major things in the movie in those first few moments. Because uh, also there's the power of family. Right. And, and the consequences of the choices we make, because he says the bonus era, like you didn't want to get involved or whatever. You know, you, you found paradise in America, he says to him. Uh, Coppola was very good at creating memorable meetings. He also wrote with Edmund North the famous beginning of Patton. Right. And but, uh, I'm just, did they actually... I was under the impression that Coppola never met... <laughs> Edward North until they all collected their Oscars. I yeah, I don't know. That's that what I, I had know. always heard. I don't know, and I know that that opening speech is supposedly based on a speech that mm -hmm. Patton actually made. Supposedly he cursed more in the real speech that he made than in, in the movie. They had to change a few things or whatever because they thought it was just too much. Um, it probably would have been. And also uh, the great opening of Apocalypse Now. Oh, oh my God. That to the napalm and the slut and the doors and, and it's, oh, it's, it's extraordinary, amazing, amazing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. That's that's a also mentioned most de most definitely. And as you know, as you said in the last episode, it, there may not be a greater saga of America that if you take Godfather one and two together as yeah. one work. Yeah, I mean that's it. That's our story. So yeah, yeah very. Very, very powerful. Simple and powerful. Wow. All right. It's time. Oh, more, before, more for I have, you. I have one thing I want to say, because in our previous episode, I drew a blank and could not remember the name of the actress who plays the Don's wife. The singer. Her name is Morgana King. Morgana My apologies. King. And, and she just one, died a few months ago. Yeah. And one of the things that makes the Godfather movies so great is the casting. Yes. Down to the smallest part. Cause parts, even the parts one and two. Because even the <laughs> smallest parts are acted so well. And Morgana King, she plays mm -hmm. Carmela, Vito Colillon's uh, wife, and she's excellent. Totally believable in every yeah. scene. Excellent. Everybody was in every minute yeah. of both of those films. Yeah. Yeah, it's only unfortunate that we get to Sophia number three, but that's another episode. <laughs> All right, Trevor, please. It's time for our number ones. Where is this going to take us? God only knows. All right, we begin with Mike the Legend Edmund. This is the simplest of the five. Uh, it'll take, uh, it's only a couple minutes long. It's the opening of Woody Allen's Manhattan. Oh, good Lord. It's beautiful. Oh, my God. First of all, I, I think I can say, I think it's the most beautifully shot black and white movie. I've ever seen. Maybe I, I. I don't know. Maybe there are others, but it's my favorite. I just Gordon Willis. Certainly, Willis. certainly in the post-color era. Yes, definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it, it has that velvety look. Oh my god! And it it just opens with the skyline of New York. George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. And uh, then we. Um, see a, a couple other skylights and then we see the old and I can't remember where it was the old Manhattan Hotel it was a hotel yeah and you see the Manhattan sign flashing and that's the only credit you see pre-credits and this in the 70s this wasn't done much no. basically you usually had your credits of at least a few well the Godfathers Godfathers yeah there are no credits in the yeah. beginning of the movie yeah, yeah. but um, anyway and then you see just 
various shots, most of them in Manhattan, and then you hit with the music of Gershwin, then you hear Woody Allen's voice. Chapter one, he adored New York City. He idolized it all out of proportion. (laughs) No, make that. He romanticized it all out of proportion. To him, no matter what the season was, this was still a time that pulsated in black and white and to the great tunes of George Gershwin. And then he keeps correcting himself. He wants to, he's writing this book and we see just more shots of every place in New York, uh, in, in Manhattan. But occasionally we see Yankee Stadium. Yes. So right. it's not totally Manhattan. And then the second time he starts again, it's too corny. Third time, it's too preachy. I want to sell some books here. Fourth time, too angry. <laughs> and then by the fifth time, he gets it. He was as tough and romantic as the city he loves. Behind uh, his, his black horn-rimmed glasses was the co- coiled sexual power <laughs> of a jungle cat. Right. New York was his t- Oh, I love this. New York was his town, and it would always would be. And then... Rhapsody in Blue. Rhapsody in Blue. Blue. The, 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 what is it? Crescendo? I, what's the word I'm thinking of? But it just, we see everything. And it's just so, it makes you really want to go to New York. Yeah. I, yeah. I it, saw, did, it did when I was a kid, when I was 14 years old and saw it. And then living in Staten Island, boy, did I want to be there. I, I saw this uh, a year before I moved back here. And I this was before, you know, the VCR days. I must have seen Manhattan about uh. 20 times at the theater. Of course, it's such an uncomfortable watch now. Um, well, listen, I have to tell you, I, I have to tell you, I was, uh, coincidentally, uh, to my college class, I was teaching Henry IV Part One, mm-hmm. and we were talking about how it's one of the most successful mixes of serious and comic material you'll ever see. And I mentioned, you know, that Woody Allen's films, say from Annie Hall to Crimes and Misdemeanors, often succeeded in doing that, and none of them have seen any of them, and they won't because of what's come out about him or, you know, what's whether, alleged. Yeah, what's alleged. What's alleged yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they, so, I don't know if Woody Allen is going to be, you know, if his reputation will survive. I thought, I have a feeling it will. I mean, probably our, after he dies, people will, you know, reevaluate it again. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into a Woody Allen. Right, no, uh, but nothing takes away from the, the beauty of what you're, of that opening. And, it's and just, also, uh, well, A.O. Scott wrote a piece um, yeah. uh, saying, you know, maybe I shouldn't like Manhattan anymore, basically. What it was saying, it was like, you know, Woody Allen did date, in actual actuality, he did date a 17-year-old. Yeah, it's eh, a little... Okay. Charlie Chaplin also dated, Yeah, you know? But didn't feature it in any of his movies. Well, he couldn't. I think uh, perhaps we should really get on to a Woody Allen episode. But I, May, think, yeah. I think film students or anybody should not not want to watch a movie. What do they think about Alfred Hitchcock and what he did to Tip? Exactly. To, to I mean, you know, or do they these, not? All these guys were monsters, yeah. basically. Um, you know, well, you've heard stories like about John Ford that some people revere, and apparently he was absolutely horrible to actors on mm-hmm. the set. Kubrick? I mean, yeah. Kubrick made Scatman Crothers do that take oh. in The Shining of when he gets killed by Jack Nicholson with the axe 78 times. And didn't, didn't Nicholson... Right, and Nicholson, the only actor who had enough power to do this, said, okay, well, that's enough. Yeah. We've done I mean, these guys are not nice people, yeah. but I guess that's what makes them great directors. But, I, I, but yeah, the whole... obsessive. 
the whole separating life from art is. My grandmother, who was a staunch, staunch Zionist, loved Wagner. And, and I said, how can you love Wagner? Yes. He was an anti yes. said, I'm not having a drink with him. I'm, I'm listening to his music. Yeah. So your grandmother. That's a, yeah. that's a, whole, that's a yeah. whole other no, no, series of episodes. The, I feel the same way. I occasionally listen to Wagner, and then after a while I start saying, well, now I'm going to start goose-stepping. I better turn her off or whatever. <laughs> I mean, and and I mean, the Nazis had co-opted the music or whatever. It's, yes, I think some people get confused, like no, no, he he lived way before them. <laughs> but he was a bit of an anti-Semite. Yes, yes, quite, yes, he was. quite publicly. Yeah. And uh, Picasso was a great artist, a very important artist, perhaps the greatest artist of the 20th century. He was a horrible yes. person. Yes, there is definitely a pattern here. <laughs> now, there are certain people that, for me, are easy to um, uh, boycott, like Mel Gibson. I don't like him as an artist. Right, but uh, yeah, this I mean, this is the toughest question of all. You know, he's been making the Wild Bunch. Oh, good lord! Yeah. Why? No. I don't know. Guess once upon a time in the, the West the, wasn't available. The, the so. writer is the guy who wrote uh, Training Day. Oh, David Error, you're really David selling Lewis. me on it now. Yeah, well, they haven't done any casting yet. I can't wait. I'm being sarcastic. Just a little bit. All right, so my number one, one thing I've learned about myself that I didn't realize in doing this podcast is I am a much bigger fan of Alain Rene than I, than I thought I was because his name keeps coming up. Um, I've much mentioned uh, Marion Bot at least like six times in our five episodes, and I was thinking how much I, I really like Muriel, even though it was a failure when it came out, and I even saw Je Tem, Je Tem, his films from 68, um, but my, and uh, I, when I've taught Night, I've shown Rene's uh, Night and Fog, which is, his do- have you guys seen that, the documentary yes. about Auschwitz? Mm-hmm. I mean, which is just short, it's the most power. it's more powerful than The Pianist and Schindler's List, all, all mixed yes. into one. I agree, um, agree with you. But, you know, so he started out as a documentarian, uh, and Night and Fog came out in 55, and he was hired to make a documentary about the atomic bomb, and realized very quickly that you could not really, there's no way that you could encompass that subject. And so instead, he and Marguerite Duras, the writer, turned it into Hiroshima Mona Moore. And Hiroshima Mona Moore, his first, so it's his first narrative film, opens up with what I think is the most startling image in any movie I've ever seen. If you guys remember, it opens with that sort oh, of yeah. jagged, modernist music, it, you can't and, and it. the two, the, the naked bodies entwined, and the shower of ash right. falling down, kind of a dark background, and it's... They're covered sh- in ash. Yeah, and, that, and then eventually it dissolves, and they're just covered in sweat. And yeah. but but that image of the naked bodies in the in the, in the falling ash was just I I, I, I can't even begin powerful. to unpack that image. And then of course they um the they have the discussion. You know she's an actress who's gone to make gone to Japan to make a film about Hiroshima, and he and she says I've been to Hiroshima, and he says you've never been to Hiroshima, right? You've seen nothing. You know nothing of Hiroshima. You know, and she says, "Well, I've been to the hospital," and you get this this beautiful like the tracking shots he used of Auschwitz in *Night and Fog*. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and he says, "You haven't seen the hospital," and she says, "I've been to the museum," yeah. and you know, you haven't been to the museum, and it's just talk about filming the unfilmable. But that image, particularly of the naked bodies, just their torsos, really entwined, clearly, you know, it's sexual with the ash falling on them and clinging to them, is just 
I, if you ask me to name the greatest image I've ever seen in a movie, it's that. I, I, I've just never seen anything like that before or since. So that's my number one. I think yes. it's a good, great, great opening. I never feel that the film raises up to that opening. Agreed. It goes on. It's, uh, it's, mm. it's, it's longer than I remember yeah. it being, and it kind of goes on. I've but, only seen it once, yeah. and I saw it recently. It, but it, it's a hard movie to watch. Yeah. Yes, I saw it. And, and I, don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean mm-hmm. it's it's an excellent movie. It's it's very powerful, but it's it's hard to watch. And I think deliberately so. No, yeah, you ever seen? It any, should be hard to watch. Have you ever seen his only English language film? No. It, the critics hated it, and I loved it. Uh, Providence. Providence. Yeah. With uh, Sir John. Gilmore. Oh yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, and critics did not like it, and uh, they don't gave, remember why. I, I, I know he, Gilgood got the New York Critics Award for Best Actor, and it is his best work in film. You can't get it on DVD. Of course not. You know, and that's one I would love to have. I have it on VHS. All right. So, <laughs> so John, we wrap it up with your number one. No pressure. Gee, I wonder what it's going to be. I can't even imagine. <laughs> All right, let me let me go out on a limb here. All right. Citizen Kane. Really? Yeah. I've heard of that. Is, is that good? Should I see that? <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing but time. I'm chairman of the board. <laughs> okay, so we open on a shot of a sign that says, No trespassing. The camera moves, the fence, eventually it moves back. We see a large fence, a gate with the big letter K, shots of various areas of the grounds. There's a zoo. We see two monkeys. There's a sign that says Bengal Tiger. Gondolas. A drawbridge. A golf course. At the golf course, we see a bench that has armrests that look like the runners on a sled. It all has the look of the opening of a a horror movie. Yeah. In the background, we see a a castle-like home on the hill with one lighted window. And then we are closer to the one lighted window. And then we're inside the room, the opposite point of view. We see falling snow. The camera zooms back to a real snow globe in someone's hand. Mm. Close-up of a man's mouth saying, Rosebud. The snow globe falls from the man's hand. It's clutching the snow globe as if it has religious significance, the way he's holding on to it when it... And right away, the importance of the snow globe and rose, rosebud is established. All, almost all the themes of the movie are, are shown to us in this that little opening. And that incredible shot then of the broken glass and it's, the nurse yeah. coming oh, in, shot in the shot. curvature of the broken glass. Like, how great, did you do that? Such a great shot. But uh, the the because also the globe was owned by Susan. That's right. That's right. He takes well, he takes it from her room when he yeah. Well, the first time we you see it three times in the movie. You see it at the very opening. You see it when he goes when he first meets her in her room in her apartment. Right. It's sitting on a dresser. You see it. If you, it's hard to notice sometimes unless you're really looking for it. And then after he destroys her her room, he picks it up <coughs> and, and he says rosebud or whatever. So it's also a link to her, but it's a link. A link to his childhood, and a link to to her, and a, and it becomes a symbol of almost everything he lost: his parents, his perhaps 
when he was happy. Right, and he says, I, you know, if I hadn't, didn't have money, I might have been a great man. Yeah. Yeah, that's the tragedy of yep. his life. Yep. And the themes of loss and loneliness and alienation are illustrated all, all in that in that opening, and then the newsreel starts. News on the march! Which, da, da, which da, da. Uh, is so witty and entertaining, but it's also so smart because because the way that the rest of the movie is, is told, it's all through flashbacks from different points of view, <coughs> but as a viewer, you feel grounded because of that, that newsreel, because it gives a picture of Kane's life in chronological order, so you don't feel so disoriented the rest of the movie. And the imagery and the concept is so original. I just always wonder what what viewers thought when they when that movie first came out. What they thought when they saw that. I can't that. even imagine. I mean, what what did you two think the first time you saw that open? The first time you saw the movie? Because it's still unlike anything else, any other movie. Well, I remember I, when I I remember seeing it on my own a couple of times, and I sort of didn't get it. And then I took a class. I was lucky enough to take a class with Andrew Saris. And he, uh, when Columbia? I was in Columbia, and it, when he, he froze it in the opening shot. He said, that's the theme of the whole movie, no trespassing. That's yeah. the whole movie summed yeah. up in, because that's what Thompson tries to do. He tries to trespass right. on the right. private life of this great man, this man yeah. of great mystery. And in the end, we come back to the sign. We, come, we get sort of the opposite right, message yeah, at the end. Right, because it goes out at the end. So that's the message of Cain, no trespassing. I saw it on television when I was about... Eight or nine. Oh, well, you were too young. I was too young. Yeah. There were certain films I could appreciate, but especially seeing it on TV. I had seen it at the theater. The only thing I remember from the first time I saw it was being totally disconcerted by seeing Joseph Cotton, because to me, he was the Bayer Aspen man. <laughs> <laughs> and I could not take him seriously as an actor. You wrap those, him up like toothpaste. I, or don't, I don't remember Orson Welles having done any commercials, however. Yeah, well, until a few years later. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to say that I had heard a lot about the movie before the first time I saw it. It was always on at some awkward time, especially late at night. And and again, I can remember the little blurb in the New York Times, like the one and only, yeah. you know, a newspaper tycoon in, in his world or orbit or whatever. <laughs> and um, the first time I saw it, I was in college, and it was on TV in the afternoon one day. It's like, I have to watch it. I keep hearing so much about it. And watching it on a little black and white TV, and I loved it. And then I saw it again not too soon after that in a class, and I saw it on the big screen. I was like, oh, my God. Well, I saw it later um, in college, I guess. And, yeah. And it was at a theater. A theater well, it was at a... <laughs> in Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota, there was a film society called Xanadu. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, and that, I think that's where I saw Sloppy it. Joe's, El Dorado. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Xanadu. All right, Xanadu. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it is the one and only. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and that, it's, now, it's, most it's, younger people I meet do not like Citizen my kid, My students have hated it when I've shown it. How can it, first of all, I don't understand how anyone can hate that movie. To me, that movie, and I'm, I'm quoting Pauline Kale, it is more fun than any other great movie should, yeah. you know. It is a fun movie. Yeah. It's nothing, there's nothing terribly heavy about it. How can anyone hate well, it? Well, no, I, I disagree. There is yeah. a lot that's very yes. heavy in the movie. Yes, but. it but does have humor, and, it, and it's just... It's visually, it's You it's, don't come out dazzling. of that movie going, I oh, think, what I think one of the things, though, that's a, a lot of younger viewers today don't like that is there are a lot of long takes in the movie. Yes. 
And they're used to seeing movie where like cut 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 cut, 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 cut. <laughs> right back to Fred Ward. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you have to once I point out this stuff to them, they're like, oh, yeah. like the deep focus, yeah. you know, the Union yeah. Forever when he little but Charlie's also expressionistic out. too, and oh. it's very much influenced by German expressionism. Oh my God, and you know the use of light and dark. I just can't see how anybody could hate that movie. I could see where they would say. I don't think this is the greatest movie ever made. I can understand that. But, and I, I've run into people who felt that way too. Oh, I really don't like that movie. But that may be it. You know, that you come to, you sit down to watch that movie and it has so much baggage with it. I mean, that's everybody it. knows it, that, that it's yeah. almost well, bounded to some too, point. Well, that's that if people keep, you know, hearing oh, it's the greatest movie ever made or whatever, and then they feel like it's... It's a chore to see where right, that kind right. of thing. Right, it's good for you. Yeah. But uh, yeah. not a coincidence that two of your five have Bernard Herman music in the background. That I is just correct. wanted to say that. that okay. That's correct. Okay. The man his due. All right. So, uh, and that's perfect leading to us leading out because we're going to go now and watch the new Orson Welles. I've been film. waiting for 42 years to yes, see this movie. The other side <laughs> of the wind. So, and we've gotten to talk a lot about the different things that uh, a good movie opening can do. Let introduce you to the characters, set up the themes and ideas. You know, get you inside a character's state of mind. It's just, you know, it's it's an art, and it's a really difficult one. And we uh, hopefully we uh, we touched on some of the best. And um, if you agree, disagree, want to argue, want to add, um, remember that our website is up and running strong, www.vintagesand.com. So please stop on by, give us some suggestions, let us know what you think of the Wells film. Also, we should add that they are, uh, Netflix is premiering the documentary about um, uh, the film, uh, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Um, and we're going to actually, I would suggest we do a drinking game that any time Peter Bogdanovich refers, refers to him as Orson, you got to do a shot. <laughs> right? Because he's, a, well, I remember the time that Orson said. <laughs> I can't drink said, that much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we may be a little sloshed after this one, but uh, I just remember hearing go. the story about Orson Welles having lunch and he ate two entire chickens. Wow. For lunch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, self-destruct, in, in all, self-destruction in all its glory, and Wells will, of course, be the topic of um, our next episode as we sort of try to fit the other side of the wind the version that we have now at least into the rest of Wells's work and how it fits so thanks for hanging out with us for a while remember that Vintage Sand is, is still and always will be a five nines and a four production we want to thank our producer Melissa Cabot we want to thank Mama Sue for the use of the hall we want to thank uh, Gabby for our logo which is pretty awesome again please check out the website and uh Give us your feedback and suggestions. Uh, a moment of silence and mourning for the death of Filmstruck, which is just heartbreaking because half the thing they showed aren't even available on DVD, but that's a whole nother two it's episodes. It's going to come back in another form, I'm sure. I really hope so. But until then, this is Mercury Theater signing off the air. Rosebud. <laughs>